are ready to go. Um, I am going to let Alex go first. I'm trying to nail down uh, this article I was looking at earlier. Um, but uh, uh, welcome, everybody. My name's Josh. Uh, we got Dan up here. Uh, hopefully, you're all seeing the same thing I am. We got Dave over here, and we got Alex over here. Um, so uh, Alex had a pretty neat experience. Uh, what was it uh, about two weeks ago, Alex? Um, yes. With an organization that he works for. Uh, and uh, he had a special visitor to that organization. He got to do something really unique. <laughs> and if you haven't seen it from um, his Instagram or a couple posts on our Facebook, um, I'm going to let Alex kind of carry the story here because it was uh, pretty unique. So, Alex? Yeah, one good way to, to, to preface it is we always want to get important people in some FPV goggles, right? So, yeah. yes. so far, accomplished. So far, Alex is in the lead with the most uh, high-ranking person, <laughs> person in FPV goggles. There you go. Uh, so, uh, we, got, we had a special guest come to one of our classes, and that was Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. I think I pronounced his last name properly i'm not sure but um so just put the link to the article to some photos from that um and so here we go and i'm going to share my screen too and hope mm -hmm. that you guys see the article uh let me click on your live there watch your stream there we go now i see your screen all right and it shows the and that's you right, on the right well, there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and right who, there who's in the, the middle? So that is the Baltimore mayor, Brendan Scott. So he also showed up. And it turns out that our the Maryland governor and both our senators were also in Baltimore that day, but they decided not to show up. So they don't care <laughs> they about missed out education. On the <laughs> um, I was kidding. I don't know if they don't care, but they just couldn't fit it in their schedule. They're busy people. At least we got Secretary Pete Buttigieg right there. Um, we yeah. So uh, that's that photo on top. Then we scroll down. We can see there's Secretary Pete in goggles. Nice. And so basically, what happened was uh, so he decided to come to one of our classes that we were teaching. So at Global at GATA, Global Air Drone Academy. We focus on teaching underserved youth from across the globe. So uh, we're headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland, but we also teach classes in Nigeria, other places in Africa. Uh, we've taught stuff in the UAE and UK, uh, but we focus more so in Baltimore and Nigeria. We've taught in some of the smaller Asian countries too. Um, and so uh, we teach yeah about youth about drones and try to get them into it and flying uh teach them how to build a small one a little simpler than fpv but because we focus on a week-long program it's, we don't have too much time to get through everything like to be able to do an fpv drone um and so secretary pete he decided uh, he wanted to come visit or at least well we got him to be able to come visit and so he came into the class, he saw us building some of the drones, and then he gave the kids a little speech, inspire, an inspirational speech, talking about how they're basically the next generation of pilots and drone pilots and how uh, he needs them for the 
transportation department. And then after that, we took him outside to go fly. And so his secretary Pete also wanted to fly a drone. So we took him outside. He got him behind the sticks of a drone and he flew that a little bit. What did he fly? And then, uh, a drone. <laughs> Just a drone. <laughs> <laughs> a big uh, drone? There's the controller for the drone. Yeah, it was a big drone. There's the controller for the drone. Um, you can guess but, what that may have been from the controller there. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Um, and so got him to fly a little bit, and then he took a – yeah, the picture's not in here, but he took a picture of the whole class – yeah, this is him when he was talking in front of everyone. And so Tell us a little bit about other... sure. About uh what... the FPV flight. How did that go? <laughs> so the FPV flight, that was tough because the part so for I would say this flight wouldn't be conducted if it wasn't Secretary Pete there because uh the area that it was flown in is a parking lot in the middle of Baltimore. So, um, not the best FPV, uh, freestyle flying location. area. <laughs> yeah. And using a racing quad with 50 degree camera up tilt. <laughs> so, uh, just did some basic passes around and orbits around a light post. And that's pretty much all I could really do. Um, and so, yeah, he enjoyed it. He liked it. Uh, then he passed the goggles to, the Baltimore mayor, he liked it. But then it also is interesting because my boss was basically over my shoulder telling me, don't crash. <laughs> um, and to land it as soon as I can because we don't want to have the option of it to be able to crash either. So how long was your flight? Uh, 52 seconds. How long did it feel? <laughs> <laughs> it felt like an hour. <laughs> it felt forever. It just That's was... good. I felt like I went through a whole battery, yet the battery was barely touched by the end of it. Um, but yeah, uh, that was a fun experience, and we got basically the high—that's the highest level government official that is in goggles. So there you go. Yeah, Catch up, people. It's a great new competition. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a yep. great job, uh, Alex. And last year, your organization yeah. got ahead, yeah. uh, Administrator Dixon. So this is so pretty that means amazing. Next year, we get POTUS. That's We're it. Going up the chain. That's it. There you go. Great job. That's that story. So it's that that's really excellent. And you know, one of the cool things that you know we've we've been privy to at least recently and some of that was evidence in today's uh ffa or faa wow um video was the recognition of fpv uh amongst um the regulators and government and that kind of thing kevin becoming... definitely mentioned fpv a number of times yes he did and um while you know some of the uh, content in the video today may, understandably may have, uh, you know, agitated a few people and upset a few people. And remote ID still tends to be a contentious subject. Um, and I imagine will be for a long time. Um, 
the fact that they are recognizing that FPV is a, a bigger and bigger segment of um, UAS, the UAS community, is definitely a win for everybody involved. Or at um, the very least, we're outspoken enough that uh, we're getting their attention. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, on the note of um, the uh, stream today, um, there were uh, a couple of topics I think that they broached that, again, were a little contentious. So uh, several of them were in regards to remote ID itself um, and how that's going to, going to function. Um, so as we know, there's going to be kind of uh, three standards. There's going to be um, the built the the standard remote ID, which is going to be the the built in coming from manufacturers like DJI or Skydio um, or, you know, Hubson or some of these other, you know, large uh, manufacturers um, coming with uh, remote ID uh, embedded into the system. Um, and that has its own little caveats within um, how it functions and, and whatnot. And then the second is going to be kind of the retrofit idea uh, which would be the the remote broadcast module. Um, and that's basically being able to take any uh, legacy uh, UAV, as I'm sure they're probably going to be start uh, being uh, called soon, um, which is going to be anything without remote ID, um, and making it remote ID compliant. Um, and then the third option is obviously no remote ID, in which case you would be um, relegated to flying in a Freya, um, which Freyas do not exist yet. Um, and those will need to be requested uh, by future CBOs and educational institutions um, once uh, those CBOs start to get approved. Um, and all this stuff kind of links up, and we could go on and on about this. But some of the some of the key points here, and, and um, FAA fully admitting on the video that, um, or on the live stream that, uh, remote ID the the technology doesn't quite exist yet in its you know full form. Now there may be some manufacturers, uh, you know, like DJI, who might be more prepared uh, for integration or may even already be uh, integrated uh, for something like that. Whereas for remote broadcast modules, we are waiting on um, some standards to come out of the ASTM, which uh, Dave is actively involved in. Um, and once those standards uh, get uh, published, then people can start producing them. Um, so nothing exists yet. Uh, we're not required to be compliant until September, 2023. Um, so, you know, but at the same time, there is that, that, uh, kind of animus towards, um, a regulator requiring a technology that doesn't exist yet. Um, and not... Uh, from some people's standpoints, understanding what it takes to create uh, said technology. So, um, Dave, you know, in, when it comes to remote ID and the remote broadcast modules and the ASTM, um, where do we stand on how that's that's coming along, and what's the expectation, 
and so on and so forth. I was able to uh, pick up uh, just a couple of minutes uh, of the of today's um, remote ID, and it was just when uh, Kevin Morris was describing the difference between a means of compliance and a declaration of compliance. Mm -hmm. So the ASTM standard is a, a document uh, that has been uh, drafted and, and sent to the FAA, and uh, this is an update to the, to the standard that was pub uh, published about a year ago. And uh, now it's going through balloting. And so within a month, we anticipate that a, the finalized and approved ASTM uh, updated standard will be sent to the FAA. That then uh, the FAA will uh, work uh, toward an approval. And that will be an example of a means of compliance that manufacturers can use. And so hopefully that's uh, September-ish of, uh, of this year. And that that will uh, the companies that were um, participated with uh, on the ASTM uh, F3834.11 uh, working group uh, include Skydio, DJI, uh, Parrot, um, and then uh, the whole whole host of uh, uh, USS uh, companies uh, as well. So the the industry is very well represented from a uh, hardware drone perspective. And uh, that this will help uh, as well as uh, Horizon Hobby, who is, uh, of course, one of the companies interested in uh, the broadcast module. So what are some of the challenges coming out of the ASTM? Is there anything that you can discuss or? Yeah, it's, it's not um, uh, embargoed like uh, like the uh, Beyond Visual Line of Sight arc. Um, <laughs> one, of, one of the concerns was the um, vertical GPS accuracy for the ground station. And that's the ground station only with respect to the standard remote ID uh, UAS. And so the requirement was that the ground station had to have a vertical accuracy of 15 feet. And a 15 foot vertical accuracy exceeds um, standard consumer electronics uh, um, specs even into the, uh, the near future. So. Uh, we're requiring we, the ASTM are requesting that uh, uh, that be uh, granted a, a technical edit or some in some way be addressed by the FAA to change that. And um, that's uh, that's really you know there that's the only uh, sticking point uh, on the ASTM. Everything else uh, will be um, we hopefully. I mean, if you read the ASTM standard today. You can see there are minor differences to the uh, remote ID uh, rule, uh, and we'll, we hopefully will get an approval on the means of compliance, which means that a manufacturer can use the means of compliance um, around the world uh, as a starting point uh, to get their declaration of compliance. So, Dave, Bruce is asking if the uh, ASTM broadcast signal is secure in any way. And if I remember right, is that that's not encrypted at all? It's totally in the open. Is that correct? And we I think we lost Dave. lost Dave. I think he's frozen. That's okay. So <laughs> I do believe you are right on that. Um, so the uh, signal is obviously not encrypted. It's um, 
<laughs> let's hope not um so it's not encrypted it is open to uh both law enforcement um the faa and um uh the general public so um however you know beyond there are certain things there are certain uh basically tags that it will be broadcasting your name is not one of them however uh your location, if you're flying a standard remote ID drone, is uh, will be being broadcast, as well as the drone's location, whether you're uh, flying standard or with a broadcast module. Um, and they didn't so... really talk about that a whole lot during the Q&A. There's a lot of talk about it in the chat. And I feel mm -hmm. like Kevin just sort of, yes, we understand Glossed people are concerned it. about it, but it's going to happen. So, Yeah, and I think that's the... the a big sticking point for a lot of people in the hobby, um, not only in the hobby, but in, in the commercial side as well, whether you're an independent operator or not, um, is that uh, there there is uh, a lot of fear uh, amongst the general public on drones. And it's not something that any organization, including the FAA, has done much about up to date to mitigate that fear. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, a lot of times I feel like uh, personally, and, and I know uh, others feel the same way, is that they've stoked that fear. Um, and a lot of that comes from media uh, in, in which, you know, nothing gets reported unless it's negative. And, um, and as well as a lot of uh, the social media side of what the FAA puts out and, you know, They've been better as of late. I think they've lightened up a little bit. Um, and uh, uh, we've been providing them uh, from our angle uh, some feedback regarding their their media posts. Um, but at the same time, you know, that, that fear leads to confrontation. And confrontation uh, is, seems like, it, at least at this point, it feels like it will only be exacerbated when people can find where you are um now yeah, and maybe time will tell them that that will be completely different but um again i don't know and and i don't think anybody knows until you know it comes to reality and i feel like a huge portion of people who fly drones um have already been harassed in one way or another and this yeah will just make it even easier to find somebody and harass them um Every time it comes yeah, up, it just everybody raises their hand. Yep, it's happened to me, and it's happened to me, and I know it's happened to you, Josh. Mm -hmm. Yep. And yeah, Josh, you know, go ahead, did Dave. You, Josh. Did you bring up what Vic Moss is working on with respect to uh, along the lines of what uh, Dan is saying about the uh, number of uh, drone operators having their drones shot out of the sky, as well as being uh, attacked themselves? And so th this mm -hmm. is a and two, I, I think um, uh, you were both saying is that the remote ID has the potential to exacerbate this because with a, a, a smartphone, you're able to locate the operator as well as uh, uh, identify you know, friend or foe in the uh, of the drone in the sky. Absolutely, and I think the the funny part to me, and and uh, this is something that. Uh, you know, I read nuance into everything, and I think you kind of have to when you, you do what we do and we look at regulation all day long um, in regards to responding to to uh, what the FAA is, is saying. But um, one of the things Kevin said is like, well, these aren't going to be long-range signals. Well, 
yes and no. It depends on what you qualify as the standard. So if the standard is um, Bluetooth 5 long range, then Dave, uh, help me out here. What's the distance on Bluetooth long range? Up to five kilometers. Okay, so that's an and, extended series. I mean, that's an yeah, extended and, range. And NextJet is correct. Uh, you you can't. You know, he's the way he's said it is um, uh, stilted, but uh, uh, the you transmit the location of the operator on with a with a broadcast module at takeoff with mm-hmm. a standard or integrated remote ID. The location of the operator must be uh, continually broadcast once a second. So if you have a standard, so, you take off and then you run somewhere else so they can't find you. <laughs> right. No, no, the standard will broadcast you. You need to identify yeah. the location. The The broadcast module is the one yeah. where you can take off, take off and run. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the nice thing is, is and, and again, I don't know what the, I don't think we know what the software is going to look like that actually reads these locations, but feasibly, let's say you you're you're an FPV, uh, pilot and you take off your your broadcast module will will send out that takeoff location but once it's taken off it's not going to send out anything beyond that uh i mean it'll update its location in the air but it's not going to continually broadcast your your takeoff location every second so you know from that standpoint but at the same time you know it's not hard to look in a field and you know track down a drone and then find the guy who's who's operating it. And I don't know if so, any of you guys are familiar with uh, like in ham radio, they have that APRS, I think that's the acronym website, which basically shows you the location of everybody who's broadcasting their location over ham radio. Um, mm-hmm. And so people have antennas on their roofs and then they connect it to a computer in their house and any signals they get, they then feed to the internet. And then there's a map that shows the whole world and where everybody is there's nothing stopping anybody from doing the same thing for remote ID. I could put an antenna on my roof, capture anybody who's flying five kilometers from my house and put their information on a map on the internet. Right. You are absolutely correct. And I, I just, you know, I think, let's see. Um, let me hit some comments here. So they misidentify the problem. The problem isn't that we need to normalize uh, drones by way of remote ID. It's that we need to educate the public as to the real or lack of risk associated with drone risk. And I agree with that. And I think that's one of the things we've been advocating for since the beginning is, you know, proper proper education coming from those who, not only those who participate in the hobby, but also those who regulate the hobby. And the problem is, is that I feel like um, there are organizations at play who truly want to utilize the sky for their own gains. And we'll talk about that here in a second Um, and have kind of pushed this uh, fear of drones to kind of, you know, create bigger regulations. Now, you know, that's the conspiracy theorist side of me, but at the same time, you know, I don't think it's that far-fetched. Um, let's see. Continued pushes for more regulation, claiming safety and security by regular only worsens the public's perspective of drones. Yes, I agree with that. Um, you can't locate the operator with add-on RID, only the takeoff point. We kind of addressed that. Um, 
So I think the hard point is, is that, you know, and let me get back to this point, is that Kevin Morris kind of said, well, these aren't going to be long range signals. Well, in the in the very remote ID document in in the um, the final rule, um, they state that it needs to be as uh, far reaching as as technologically possible, essentially. Correct me if I'm wrong with that. But uh, so they're pushing for it to be long range, but they're saying, ah, it's not going to be long range. Well, you know, when you're pushing for something to be that way, people, you know, obviously aren't going to believe that. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, I don't know. It was a very interesting conversation. Dan, did I miss any other kind of key points there that were kind of contentious? I think the rest of it felt like it was fairly normal information. Yeah, they misspoke a couple of times, um, just minor things about you know, what drones had had to be uh, remote ID compliant, but then they like corrected themselves later. And, um, a big one yeah, was, so... was talking about how, how he kind of glossed over that whole whole point about privacy and your location being broadcast. But yeah, um, I and wasn't I always over... paying super close attention to what they were saying because I was trying to respond to the chat <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, I think you and I both And then were. there was also the chat going on over in Facebook and the chat going on over in YouTube. And... Yeah, I was in both. I was trying to, I was more focused on the YouTube chat because that seemed to be more active and, and, and uh, pushy, I would say. Um, but, you know, people in both chats uh, brought up some relevant points. And, you know, it's it's definitely uh, something that, that we'll need to see addressed. And the concern I have <clears throat> is that um, the FAA has basically put this whole remote ID thing onto the manufacturers and or on the community itself uh in the case of let's say a company like uh um get fpv or rotoriot or race day or pyro wanted to build a a functioning um remote id broadcast module not saying they will i'm just saying if they did but you know it becomes too over complicated for them to do so or a company uh only one company is producing them and they get kind of price gouged or you know something like that it makes it almost untenable to to comply what happens then so it's it's stuff like that that you know i don't think is going to be a problem but i'm trying to look at all angles of attack um when it comes to to remote id um, Dave, you kind of know the the engineering and manufacturing side of, of things a little bit better than you know most anybody here. Do you see production of the remote ID broadcast modules being a concern? No, I I don't think so. The, the, uh, they could uh, you know if, if we think about chip shortages, you don't need an ASIC to uh, to create a, a broadcast module like this. You know, mm -hmm. general purpose uh, uh, chips will do, and I. Uh, where it'll be a little less than one year that the uh, manufacturers will have uh, for an approved uh, MOC, and I, I think that's plenty enough time. They're and they're all already uh, starting to work, uh, and we know the uh, um, the larger uh, uh, drone companies are uh, contemplating that they will be able to, if not the module, they'll be able to create the uh, standard um, RID. Uh, UASs with software uh, uh, changes to their existing products. 
and that yeah. that likely will meet me mean additional uh transmitters of uh you know, either um uh, bluetooth or wi-fi so another side question here is a lot of our gear is coming from foreign soils uh so uh, you know fcs are manufactured overseas in china motors you know all this all most of our stuff is, is coming from overseas um do you see uh a company uh like horizon maybe stepping up domestically to aid us because i don't think you know i don't think china is going to be producing broadcast modules for just the u.s market yeah no i i, I don't but I, I see them using just commodity uh stock uh, uh chips and then mm -hmm. uh, build, building out communications uh devices with those um I uh, it, I think there will be a set of problems if we continue down the path we are on with uh, with China because the as we uh, we can take apart uh, any uh, drone in the sky uh, that's flying and uh, there are components in there that are uh, from China and so happily there's a group that's uh, uh, talking to uh, the administration about hey you know mm. we're in in order to create a domestic drone industry we're going to need some time and there's going to uh, need to be significant investment uh, and it's capital investment in in both uh, potentially fabs as well as uh, manufacturing locations for things like motors mm -hmm. absolutely so the faa brought up the point again saying that this is a like a digital version of a license plate and if you see a car that's driving without a license plate you know they're up to no good and that <laughs> this is supposed to normalize drones and make people feel you know, not afraid of them because they see remote ID. So obviously they're doing something good. But we've made up made points about this many times before that both it's spoofable. So people who are up to no good could easily create their own remote ID module, stick it on there and pretend to be anybody doing good. But also not all drones have to have them. So if you're flying a 249 gram drone recreationally, someone on the ground, public is going to have no idea that that's flying recreationally doesn't need remote ID. They'll look at their phone like, oh, that's up to no good because there's no remote ID on it. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure what the point is I'm making there, but the FAA is still pushing that this is a, a like a license plate. And if you see someone without a license plate, they're obviously doing something bad. Yeah, but I mean, there's, there's just so many what if scenarios with that. And it's it's difficult to i mean oh you know we've said this a bunch but i i feel like the the key point that we need to get regulators to understand and this is something that dave has has brought up uh, probably a hundred or a thousand times within his task groups at the at the DAC is one size does not fit all and i feel like you know i'm i'm always gonna say that uh, from a commercial perspective, remote ID makes a whole lot more sense than it does from a recreational perspective. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it irks me all the time. They they keep saying, and even said multiple times in this Q&A, like, we're working with industry on this. And I know when the FAA says that, they're including recreational people in industry. But it really comes across as, yeah, we're working with companies like Amazon and DHL and stuff and Google on this. Not well, thanks for that guys. segue, Dan. <laughs> That's a great segue. So, yeah, Alex, speaking industry. Of... <laughs> so, um, 
speaking of industry and uh, Amazon and DHL, so as I'm sure uh, XJet uh, can attest to with his latest video, um, Amazon has uh, pretty much uh, gotten rid of most of their Amazon Prime Air employees within the UK. Um, 100 employees uh, have lost their jobs and dozens of other roles are moving to other projects as the company shutters part of its operation in the UK. Um, now, uh, Amazon still operates a prime air segment here in the United States, um, and there's no word on how that's going to be. I, I spent some time reading this article the other day. Um, it was very... Uh, interesting uh some of the claims where it basically said that some employees just you know did nothing all day they drank beer while they're at work and in some workplaces that's acceptable i do know this um i have friends who you know their their jobs had you know like a keg in the in the break room so you know more power to you but um i don't know about amazon um they said uh a lot of people they would bring in employees uh they would uh work on something for uh, some time, and then they would just move on to something else. It's almost like it was a stopgap between moving from one job to another. Um, they, uh, uh, a lot of it was uh, detailing uh, objects to basically object avoidance, and they would go through, and they were doing a lot of um, uh, AI uh deep learning kind of stuff where they would teach the AI what to avoid, that kind of thing. So they would go in and track certain objects on images or videos um, to, to train the AI. Um, so uh, just pretty interesting on um, the collapse of that. And I'm still yeah. the word from the article. I'd be really uh, curious uh, to, to learn more in the future to see if Amazon's really sort of ditching the idea or they just had bad management in that office and are moving it elsewhere and you that know, this, might be the this case should, this really should this is interesting to watch because for anyone who's uh, involved in uh, managing teams in in the uk laying off uh, redundancy you know uh, uh, in our terms uh, or in their terms layoffs in our term uh, laying off 100 people in the uk is a big deal and it is mm -hmm. very difficult and extremely expensive. In the United States, you lay someone off, and it's up to the company whether you want to give them a severance or not, and uh, you show them the door. And it's uh, it's pretty heartless and pretty ruthless, and that's not the way it is in the UK or uh, uh, Western Europe. So really interesting that Amazon did this. And so it, it, I, I thought I would see as a follow-up, oh, well, they just moved people around to other assignments. But it appears they did more than that. And as, uh, mm -hmm. as Josh was saying, Josh was saying, and the article points out, what will be really interesting to watch is what happens to the Amazon uh, US-based uh, team. Uh, in addition, you know, this could simply uh, be consolidation. The, uh, the Google Wing uh, offering uh, is picking up steam and looks really amazing. It is a uh, soup to nuts. Uh, you, it, you can, it can take an order from a customer. It handles flight path management, approval requesting, uh, management of the drone, and then billing. And so it's a, a one-stop shop uh, ecosystems piece of software 
And what we would provide is uh, the drones and the, and the manpower. And so, as usual, Google has cleverly looked at where's the money, where can they make some money without having to uh, incur uh, a high uh, person cost uh, doing this type of work. So it's, um, uh, I think uh, XJet had the, uh, the view that um, uh, B2C, uh, business to consumer uh, package delivery is not viable. Well, it's possible that uh, with Google Wing, it could be a disruptive technology where it, it, could, be, uh, it could be viable. And in particular, it can be viable uh, where it's a high, vo high value uh, ticket item, like it's uh, a medicine or it's uh, mm -hmm. uh, tissue samples or uh, food that needs to get to somewhere or it's vaccines or things of that nature. And you know, one of the things we talked about, and the other article I was going to pop up here is DJ or DHL is. Uh, uh, let me say that again: DHL, not DJI, uh, is pulling out of its drone delivery uh, segment as well. They are shutting it down, shut, shuttering the whole thing. Um, they are no longer going to pursue that. I think they called it their personal copter. But, you know, the Google Wing side of things is, you know, they're building a UTM first and kind of, you know, scaling it from there, it, it feels like. And um, so they, they probably stand to gain more. And now XJet, he did say you can deliver by drone, but it's not a sustainable business model. And, and I would agree with that, you know, with certain cave caveats. And, you know, those would be, um, in a urban environment, drone delivery doesn't make sense because you can deliver more packages by person and in a vehicle um, in a urban environment much quicker than you can with drones. And it's a, a yeah, I would, I would, you know, even say it's a, a massive cost savings, even considering buying the vehicle, paying the the driver, and so on and so forth, and fuel and and all that kind of stuff. Right. But it when might, it comes, yeah. to the equations might change when we have uh, a rural one, environment, rural and one on many and autonomous. And so you yeah. you have zero operators, the, the drones fly themselves mm -hmm. and, uh, or you have one drone operator operating uh, numerous, Multiples, numerous yeah. drones. Right. So it's, it's not, you know, I think uh, Bruce is on a good point that standard, you know, what we think of as prime uh, trucks driving up and doing a uh, uh, business to consumer uh, delivery that norm, you know, that is not um, sustainable. But uh, the business model is sustainable in many cases, and with um, technology that's uh, down the road just a couple of years. Yeah, and I think one of the things that Google Wing has going for it is it's not just delivery specific. It's going to be a uh, an entire ecosystem that supports multiple different facets of the industry. And that could be agriculture, that could be delivery, that could be um, medical, that could be inspection, that could be, you know, any of the other areas where drone uh, drones have their uses. So, you know, there are viable models out there. There are, you know, unviable models. It just depends on what you're doing. And I think by kind of pigeonhole pigeonholing themselves into into one uh kind of segment is kind of maybe where amazon and dhl are finding that it just doesn't make sense and uh you know in terms of you know that business to consumer or even business to business delivery it just doesn't make sense for drones and except for in very special use cases as as xjet was saying um 
Now, um, on the flip side of that, um, you know, it, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, drones are massively useful little, um, inventions. And I mean, we're all here because we love them and, uh, we enjoy flying them, but at the same time, they are extremely useful. And going back to kind of, you know, segment this back is when it comes to these commercial uses for these drones, remote ID, again, probably makes a lot of sense when it, when it's, uh, like this, but when you take into account recreational, the fact that most FPV racing is happening, you know, less than, you know, 20 feet off the ground, um, maybe in certain circumstances, a smidge higher, um, but saying that all the, you know, trees and man-made objects in the area are probably taller than it, then obviously we have a special, special interest in, in some kind of exemption from a lot of the regulations, whether that's shielded operations, which is something that the FAA is looking at. Um, but I'd be interested to, to, to understand it, it feels like they put the, the cart before the horse in terms of, you know, they're funding a lot of studies into shielded operations, but we already have remote ID where as those studies could come back and say, remote ID isn't really necessary for recreational, but we've created all these regulations. So why would we change it now? Kind of scenario. And so they brought up shielded operations a little bit in the Q and a today. Um, do you remember what they said about it? I remember them talking about I it. Don't. I think bit, I, but... I think I came, if that was at the beginning, I came in after that. I came in at about the same point Dave did is when they were talking about means of compliance. So I'd have to go back and watch that portion. Um, but I know they are looking at it. And, um, uh, but again, it feels like, you know, why would they change something they've already created to accommodate some new information? It's, it's easier just to maintain the status quo. And that's something I fear. Yeah. It really seems like, and hopefully we'll get proof of this someday that they haven't done any adequate amount of risk assessment of what they're doing and so they're, they they can't apply regulations proportionally because they don't know what the risk is that they're trying to mitigate exactly and i i feel like a lot of this is just you know it's uh, an extension of that fear of something new and i feel like um when it comes to that, I feel like even our own government agencies bought into the fear that they were uh, creating around something. And thus, you know, it, it's kind of this, you know, weird paradox that they created something. They created regulations uh, based on fear of something that they created the fear around. <laughs> so... So, let me, so let me segue to something a little more positive. <laughs> one, of the, one of the interesting um, FAA Drone Advisory Committee tasking groups that's starting off right now has to do, and it was uh, documented in the last uh, DAC, it's the K, K through 12, so kindergarten through 12th grade. And really excited uh, on that one. Alex is involved, um, uh, and as am I, uh, as uh, I think Kenji's on that one as well. And it's a, uh, this will be uh, very helpful because K through 12 and STEM equates to recreational UAS. And so that the all of the DAC members will um, stand up and, and be counted on, yeah, this is really great from a, you know, putting, giving programs to K through 12 in a formal way that have to do with drones is great because that will help build the, uh, the 
job pool of uh, individuals uh, that will go to work in aviation uh, as we go forward. And everyone that we talk to gets that. And, and as I've mentioned, in our work and as we put forward and comment on regulations and NPRMs and advisory circulars, we get help from AOPA, ALPA, AIA, Boeing, Harris, Verizon, AT&T, Airbus, Intel, and the list goes on. So people who are, have been working with the FAA for decades and who are knowledgeable on how to work with them and how to uh, collaborate with them. And they also, we keep uh, bringing forward the idea that there are 1.2 million recreational operators and that far outnumbers any commercial. So I take uh, XJet's point on uh, CDA early, commercial, commercial Drone Alliance. There are uh, a number of DAC members who are uh, anti-recreational, and there are lots that are very supportive of recreational. There are, and you know, one of the one of the um, bigger uh, news items in the last couple of weeks, and I can't remember if we covered this, but John Hagrain um, from Aloft uh, is now one of the board members at the Commercial Drone Alliance, and. Honestly, I feel like um, that's probably a win for recreational. Um, he has been uh, very supportive of the recreational community in the past. So having that presence um, within that organization, I feel is probably a good thing. Um, right. and we, we should note that the formerly named Kitty Hawk, but it's a, it's a Lance type application called a mm -hmm. loft. And for recreational, it's free. And so that's, you know, John's or uh, John's company does not charge us anything for the use of his application because he's trying to promote recreational operators. And, Absolutely. and we're very, very grateful for that. And man, my segues are getting way better because I can now like use that to jump over to this, um, which is uh, Aloft has now provided updates to their uh, Lance app. Um, now, one of these is something we'd like to see for recreational as well, but you can now apply for Lance at night for commercial operations. Um, and then there's uh, now uh, increased overlap within the app. So recreational and commercial operators can have up to five overlapping airspace op uh, authorizations within 100 miles. Um, so you can kind of jump uh if you're gonna fly multiple spots you can kind of get those authorizations lined up ahead of time um commercial operators can apply for further condition um within 24 hours of uh coordination uh within 24 hours of the start time and uh some new uh design map layers now um that the new fa data sets that he's mentioning here for that improved design um, that's a direct result of one of the DAC committees, uh, which was the uh, segmentation of um, the UAS facility map uh, tasking group in 2020. Yeah, and that was uh, taking, uh, they were one statute mile before, and now those have been separated into half statute miles, correct? So there's that, that prov when you're flying in controlled airspace, that allows. Uh, there to be a little more um, separation. So in some circumstances, if you've ever used the UAS facility maps, uh, which if you've used a Lance app or if you've used uh, the UAS facility maps directly, you'll notice that there are um, altitude markers within controlled airspace. Some of them say zero, some of them say you know 50, all the way up to 400 feet. Um, and a lot of times because of the 
lack of segmentation, uh, certain areas would an entire uh, um, one uh, square statute mile would be segmented for, let's say, zero, whereas now uh, it can be segmented a little more accurately and be a little more progressive of a uh, buildup. So, you know, maybe the ones closer to the airport would still be zero, but the next, you know, that next half uh, statute mile uh, may be available for up to 50 feet or something like that. So it grants us a little more control over where we can fly um, and yeah, makes and things that, a little easier. That tasking group was a great example. We had uh, people on the tasking group who managed airports from uh, the the lead of the group was from um, Reno. Um, we had people there from Alaska, from LAX, from Memphis, uh, from Atlanta, uh, from air traffic control management, as well as uh, the group that I mentioned earlier about uh, aircraft manufacturers as well as drone manufacturers. So well represented. And the uh, so the grid number got uh, increased, uh, as Josh has been talking about. Uh, as well as uh, the shielded operations. Thank you, Bruce, for bringing that to our attention. We cited uh, shielded operations from New Zealand, and that got included, and that is now uh, and a uh, part of the Assure program that the FAA has uh, put money out, as Josh was saying earlier, to validate that it's something that uh, they can uh, provide. Mm -hmm. And speaking of tasking groups, I'm still anxiously awaiting to hear what comes of the other tasking group related to the risk um, I forget exactly what that one's called or what task grouping group number that is, but 11 tasking group 11, where they're supposed to read the FAA's document about mm -hmm. risk. Oh, yes. Yeah, that so, one is uh, that that's uh, TG 11. And that's interesting from the perspective of the, uh, the risk is a, a metric or they characterize it as a, what's the safety framework we're going to base all decisions against and the uh, in uh, manned or crude c-r-e-w-e-d crude flight um, the safety framework has to do with fatalities and fatalities i, I personally uh, assert that that's not a good metric for uas because um, if you look at the number of fatalities that uh, we have with uh, electric-powered uh, small UAS, the number is zero, and it has been zero. And so if it goes to one, that's, uh, you know, um, we have uh, per DJI's uh, NPRM response, there are 10.3 million hours of uh, drone uh, flight hours logged every year, and that was at that's 2019 numbers. And so one fatality is not going to be statistically valid against what they're trying to achieve. So yeah, this is, uh, we've got a good group of people. It's, uh, they're taking it, we're, we're taking it seriously. And that one is, uh, that tasking group is moving forward too. We'll see how that uh, progresses. Uh, just before we move on from this aloft and um, Lance update, I did want to add that for the flying at night, even though it's for commercial only, that's due to the FAA, not uh, loft itself. Uh, John was able to confirm that for me earlier today that it's the FAA holding that, holding the recreational at night back, not the not aloft. That's interesting, considering it's. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Consider it. Uh... Yeah, considering that they're both allowed. 
All right. So to kind of wrap things up, I got five minutes, four minutes left here. Um, so uh, to not be all complete doom and gloom and, and negative, as Dave was saying earlier, um, we do have the uh, Drone Racing League and uh, T-Mobile have kind of partnered together to uh, to um, kind of deliver their next gener- their next season's drones, and they are going to be equipped with 5G. Um, they are debuting this at the um, Chicago White Sox and New York Yankees. Let's see. Is it just uh, me or do those be, uh, props look a little small for that drone? They, they really do seem a little small. So this will uh, debut tomorrow um, at the uh, Major League Baseball's Field of Dreams game. Um, so apparently it's going to be taking place not in the stadium, but apparently in this field that's uh, right next to it. Um, they um, have an embedded 5G module capable of live streaming video directly to the Internet. Internet. I was going to say, that looks like the Field of Dreams field. Isn't that... In it is. I-, I thought that was in Iowa. But... Uh, see, I guarantee you it's not in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the movie took so place I in Iowa. I think it anyway. is in Iowa. Yeah, it's in Dyersville. Dyersville, Iowa. Um, So they are going to be uh, um, de- debuting that tomorrow. So that'll be what pretty interesting to see. Maybe. Let's see. Uh, so it's going to live stream video directly to the internet. Um, we've been bringing, uh, we've been bringing this incredible jaw-dropping competition and entertainment to millions of fans while we're still storytelling as well as testing and advancing new emerging technology that can disrupt industries beyond sport and ultimately benefit the world," said DRL President Rachel Jacobson. Um, so pretty interesting that uh, we're uh, gaining partners uh, from. Companies like T-Mobile to help advance so uh, their sport. Is the 5G just used for live video, or is there a control link over 5G? Does it say? Uh, it's. It looks like it's going to be uh, video streaming only. Um, okay. I don't know that I would be relegating uh, yeah, I know control to 5G. They are talking that. about 5G being low enough latency for control, but I'd be really shocked if they did. I don't yeah. think the pilots would like it. I wouldn't think so. Well, I think, yeah, I think for that high-speed link, you have to have direct, almost direct line of sight at times to whatever tower they're using. And, um, I, you know, the second you go behind something, it's like, mm, yeah, no. I, I don't know that I'd trust that. But. I could certainly see how you could use that for live HD video to the spectators. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that'll be Alex, that'll definitely be interesting. Alex, before we wrap, do you want to give a plug to IO? Oh, yeah. So IO started today, uh, Muncie, Indiana, AMA headquarters. If you're not there yet, start moving there, and I'll be there tomorrow. Great, and good so luck. Then, are you going to be flying? Especially after or, some rain today, just... and the course got destroyed. Yeah, oh, so boy. Yeah. Are, you, are you going to be flying, Alex, or are you just going out as a tourist? Uh, I'm going to be going and volunteering. I don't think I'm going to be flying at the event. Handing out stickers? I might, I might. Yes, I'll be handing out stickers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I might fly. I don't know yet. I haven't decided yet. Um, I don't have a pilot pass, so I might have to get one on site. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, um, if you're gonna be there, go find Alex. He's got uh, our awesome uh, F, 
FPV, FC slaps. Uh, we got those from, I believe, from Banff decals. Um, and uh, speaking of Banff, uh, the uh, West Coast Throwdown is, I believe, in four days. So um, if you're going to that, uh, uh, um, hopefully you have fun. Um, one of these one of these years, I need to get out there and, and do that. That sounds like a, a ton of fun. But uh, um, definitely be safe, have fun if you're going, whether you're going to IO or you're going to West Coast Throwdown. Um, just you know, be safe, have fun, uh, enjoy it. Um, those events are always super cool. So, um, does anybody have any, any questions? Yeah, I was gonna. You were just saying the same thing. Yeah. What else did <laughs> did people did people have more questions from for the FAA's Q and A about remote ID? Like, I swear they they answered some like just basic. <laughs> you know questions that everybody has but like they didn't actually they like took what four questions at the end and talked about them in in the time that they had and it's great that they were live and were talking and interacting with the community a little bit but man they could have answered more questions i think joshua bardwell answers more questions in five minutes than they did in an hour yeah and i feel like you know i'm sure i didn't get into the document to to see where the people were submitting questions but some of the questions felt like they were kind of pre-chosen like they started uh, off mentioning that they did have they they said that we you know here are the the questions that people have already submitted we picked some of them to, to answer right off the bat and i don't even know how people mm -hmm. pre-submitted questions but like they didn't even tell us how to submit questions until like 10 minutes into it so yeah it was kind of weird so uh just on a side note uh, well if there's any questions uh, people are, are thinking about them we did submit our advisory circular response um after i adjusted margins and font sizes i believe it ended up being nine pages um so uh we we obviously had quite a lot to say on that um most of which we went over last town hall um so if you have questions about what we said uh you can review that um uh, the last town hall video or you can go to our website where we have uh, our response posted there um so I wonder if we can yeah. get the faa to tell us how many responses they got to that that would be interesting you know, yeah yeah I'm, I'm actually curious about that as well um i know if it feels like it was less set up for individual comments like the nprm um and more set up towards uh potential potential cbos yeah so hopefully um a lot of the organizations that are out there that are looking to um uh, become CBOs responded to And that. I did get a handful of people replying to me saying that they've submitted comments, um, some not even in Good. the U.S. So I'll be curious Good. if we can ask them uh, what what the numbers looked like. And so XJet brings up a good point. One other big yeah. thing from this week that we totally didn't even talk about was Race Day Quads is uh, the brief, I suppose, they filed that we can now read. Yeah, so um, really interesting brief. Uh, I did go through and read a majority of it. Um, they do make bring up some interesting points that we do agree with. There are some other points that I feel are probably a little rash. Um, but at the same time, you know, I get kind of where they're going with their challenge. Um, what I'm looking forward to is seeing the court's brief back after uh, later this year. 
Um, I know we're not, the expectation is that there's not going to be any type of decision until probably early to mid next year. Um, but uh, the, the, the brief that the court comes back with is going to be the interesting uh, point. Now, one of the things I didn't know is they filed this in the exact same court that uh, uh, in which the um, registration requirement was overturned um, and then uh, then got re-upped by Congress uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of what their sticking points um are going to be and kind of what's going to get thrown to the side. I, I do. I know they've put in uh, Tyler and his team have put in a ton of work on this. I do hope the best for them. Um, and like we've always said, there's no harm in uh, kind of coming at this from multiple angles. You know, their, their angle is to go through the courts. Our angle is to work from within as, as best as we can. Um, and, uh, hopefully, you know, between the two and all the other, uh, organizations that are working with the FAA or, um, advising the FAA, um, organizations like the, uh, like Vic Moss's organization, um, and Kenji and Google wing and, um, all the other, you know, DAC organizations, people who aren't even a part of the DAC, but just assist with those tasking groups. Hopefully all of it can kind of come together into some form of uh, reasonable regulation that actually truly does make sense. And, and that's not just a, you know, as the, as the FAA says, common sense regulation. Well, that's, that's their talking point for us. It actually truly does need to be common sense. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, whatever angle you're coming at it from, uh, I think is, is, uh, an angle that, uh, can be utilized to, to make some change. So best of luck to them. Um, and, uh, you know, if you feel like you want to support them, support them. Absolutely. Um, I would never say anything negative about anybody in our community. So, um, I think, uh, yeah, that's about all I got on that. So any other questions, comments, concerns? All right. Well, with that, I'll give you the rest of your evening back, and uh, hopefully it's a good one. Thanks for joining, everybody. Thank you. See you in two weeks. Absolutely. Yeah.